This is a podcast from the Poetry Society. I remember being a child and I had a realisation that what I knew then will be as much as I will ever know. And I remember writing that down, although I can't remember what it was that I saw. I'm pretty sure I was right and I probably could see the world's absurdity in a way that as you get older and you have to fit into it, you lose that perspective. Hello, I'm Emily Berry, editor of the Poetry Review, and today I'm going to be talking to Mark Waldron, who has two poems in the autumn 2019 issue of the magazine, Contingency and To Dig. Hello, Mark. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Emily. Thank you for inviting me. Mark Waldron is the author of four poetry collections, The Brand New Dark from 2008 and The Itchy Sea in 2011, published by Salt, and Meanwhile Trees in 2016 and Sweet Like Rinky Dink, which was just published earlier this year from Blood Axe. His work has appeared in various anthologies, including Identity Parade, New British and Irish Poets and Best British Poetry 2012, 2013 and 2015. I don't know what happened in 2014. In 2014, he was named a Next Generation Poet by the Poetry Book Society. He works in advertising and lives in East London with his wife and son. Um, So maybe we could hear Contingency to start. Sure. Contingency. If you dig a hole and get in it, what then? If you say, flick a tree and holler, then what? If you reverse into an attitude of dotty surrender, all flags flying, the sky as blue as an unblown whistle, the children dancing, well, what's next for pity's sake? If you ride a horse sideways, the crisp mist coming down all over, the broom broom, the char char, do you like horses, what they say? If you come screaming over the hillocks, the dust and the dust, a plume in your bonnet, a char-char, the sheer amount of a horse. You know what side your bread's buttered. Both sides. That's really good to hear it read out. We had an email exchange about these poems after I accepted them, and I happened to have just read the children's book A Hole is to Dig by Maurice Sendak and Ruth Krauss. Both poems reminded me of that book, and I happened to mention it, and it turned out that there was some link or that you'd been thinking of it and I thought that was interesting because I've always thought there's something in your poems that reminds me of the language of children's literature in like the best possible way it's like a kind of reveling and nonsense and sort of riddling and I wanted to ask you about that and if children's books were very important to you when you were younger or if that's something you're kind of aware of and think about yeah I have noticed that themes from children's books sometimes appear or in my first book, The Magic Roundabout came into the yeah. book and, the, and I found myself writing poems about Dougal and Florence, but as though they were adults in some way. I think I quite like mixing up childhood and adulthood. I don't know why that is, except that maybe there are unconscious things from my childhood that I want to resolve or look at anyway. And also I am drawn to to using kind of nonsense. I don't think anything really ever is nonsense. I mean, there are moments in that poem where it's kind of not clear to me why I'm saying what I'm saying, 
but there will be some hidden reasons sort of thing. Well, I guess pure nonsense is a different thing. The type of nonsense I'm talking about is more, yeah, riddling. So you imagine that there is some sense somewhere. I was thinking of that quote by Wallace Stevens, life's nonsense pierces us with strange relation. You recognise something in it, even if you don't really know what exactly, it means. Exactly, yeah. I was amazed when you made the connection with the whole, A Hole is to Dig. Because all I remember about that book is the title. I'd always loved that title. I'm not even really sure why, except that it feels like the hole is already there before you dig it. Mm. And I quite like that idea. You know, in some way, a poem's already there before you start digging it. I had been thinking about the title of that book and those two poems came out around that time. I hadn't even noticed that I was talking about digging in, yeah, in them. When you mentioned it, it's like, yeah, that actually, that is where it came from. It's one of those weird serendipitous things because a year or so ago I was writing something about Morris Sendak but about one of his other books. I'd never heard of A Hole is to Dig and I came across it while I was researching it and I thought, oh, that looks like a great book. I want to read that sometime. I forgot about it and then a few weeks before I read your poems, I'd ordered it and read it and thought, ah, this is wonderful. They're one of those strange joys of timing. But the way that book works is feels to me quite similar to how your poems work because it's like a a collection of weird definitions. There's lots of definitions of holes in it, but one of them is a hole is when you dig it, you go down. It's like a weird logic that makes sense, even though it doesn't, and that's sort of what seems to happen in in your work. Yeah, that's so interesting because, again, I haven't read the book since I was probably 10 or something. I don't think I even owned it. I think one of my younger brothers owned it. But I like that one you just said, because it's very... Children think like that, I think, don't they? So she really has captured something. And that maybe that is quite liberating when you're writing poetry, if you can kind of get back to that way of looking at things that you had as a child that you Mm. lose, that you kind of solidify, don't you? I I remember being a child, and I think I was probably about 13, and I wrote down on a bit of paper something about... I had a realisation that what I knew then will be as much as I will ever know. And I felt that I was at a peak kind of (laughs) understanding. And I remember writing that down, although I can't remember what it was that I saw. I'm pretty sure I was right. And I probably could see the world's absurdity in a way that as you get older and you have to fit into it, you lose that perspective. But that's what your poetry is so good at, I think, is that it really does pick out the absurdity of the world and like kind of show you it in a very charming way that's it's not really unsettling it's just it works in the way that some children's literature does which is to sort of both reassure and reveal because it's like oh well someone else has recognized this ridiculousness of the situation and is able to laugh at it and then you can as well okay great (laughs) (laughs) because I think um you know when you're writing what you want is a kind of moment of intimacy with your reader where you're both seeing something don't you the exchange of the way a poem is quite one-on-one even if it's sort of being read by numerous people yeah that kind of brings me to my next question actually I have the sense that your poems often come in the form of dialogues like sometimes literally you've got two characters in the poems talking to each other but sometimes it's more like an internal dialogue with one speaker both these poems in a way might fit into that with contingency you're kind of proposing a, something and then the other voice is saying and what's going to happen after that I really like that as a form I guess it kind of gives them a bit of a theatrical air especially with to dig where you've got the detracting voice which sort of says no it's not 
and so on reminds me a bit of the thing in pantomime where the audience have to call out I mean <laughs> making it sound like your work is all but I mean to me that's an extreme compliment <laughs> so I hope you don't object to that so I suppose I was just wondering if, if you're influenced by the theatre or where you think that might come from. I do re- see my poems as bits from non-existent plays <laughs> and I do like to inhabit characters. Like every poem I've ever written, I think, to some extent, I'm inhabiting. Maybe that's true of all poets, even when that's less overt, as a degree of... You inhabit a persona as soon as you start to write. I want that to be a little bit overt in some way. And I also want to be immune from criticism. You know, that if I make it to some extent overt, that there's a sense that this is me acting something, then I can be more risk-taking in what I say, maybe. I mean, when I write these poems I write, I have no idea what my intention is. I just think it feels nice. And then in a situation like this, I think, OK, I better have a look at that poem and before I talk to Emily and work out what I might be doing. You know, when I started writing, I'd often hear people, people would go, oh, I write my poem and then I put it out in the world and then it doesn't belong to me anymore and other people put their stuff on, onto it and it belongs to them. And I'd sort of nod along because I thought, yeah, I should probably agree. But actually I was thinking, no, it's not really... I've got something I want to say, actually, even if it's not overt. So if someone were to make an interpretation that you didn't agree with, you would object to that? Well, actually, I don't know that's true, because sometimes people make an interpretation and you go, actually, they're probably right, I suppose. But I've never been completely happy with handing stuff over to the reader. But I think in the poem when it's going, um, so then what? And what's next? You know, it's like, you tell me. Do I really, as the writer, have to do the whole thing? (laughs) I think I'm sort of jokingly inviting the person who's going to take this on to kind of engage with the production of... That's interesting. ..to some extent, I think. That it's kind of annoying to have to, as a writer, that, well, I'm supposed to dig a hole and get in it. Well, then what? I mean, where does this go? And instead of working out where it goes, can I sort of invite that to, to the reader to kind of... In a way, there's some of that, I think. I definitely know what it's like being on the other side of <laughs> the other side of the microphone, as it were, being asked to say why you write or something. And it's like, I don't know. I think there's a quote by John Ashbery, something like, the better the writer, the harder it is to say what it's about. I mean, it's phrased better than that. But you both kind of want to have something to say because you're you're asked and it seems silly not to have anything to say but at the same time the poem is the thing that's supposedly saying whatever it's saying I suppose. Yes and it wants to say something probably beyond language a bit. Turning that back into language is feels I mean interesting as well you know but also odd. To sort of return to the theatrical idea I also have always felt like there's something a bit Shakespearean about your work there's the character of Marcy who I think has appeared all throughout and then there's this character Manning who appeared maybe two books back and Manning particularly to me feels like quite a Shakespearean character there's this kind of ceremony with which he sort of appears I don't know if that's something that resonates well I think the things that get inside you are the things you're exposed to when you're quite young 
the things I read when I was doing my A-levels or O-levels, you know, the stuff I was exposed to. And my parents exposed me and my brothers. They would take us to Beckett plays at the Royal Court when we were like, 13 and 14 stuff that was way over yeah. our heads oh wow well that's a def- i can definitely see that sort of influence in your work and shakespeare definitely not really his poetry but his plays something about the vividness and directness got inside in some yeah definitely shakespeare i think i've read that you didn't start writing poetry until you were in your 40s yeah how did it come about <laughs> well i kind of always had actually written it since i was a teenager but probably only one or two a year. And then when I was in my 20s, I tried to write a novel, but it was a kind of a novel with bits of poems in it and whole poems. And it was a slightly Tristan Shandyish sort of, yeah, it wandered about. I showed it to Julie, my wife, and she said, probably in the late 80s, I showed it to her, and she said, the novel's not great, but the poem's in it. Yeah, and then she nagged me for 10 years to do something with the poet, and eventually I did. But I think because I didn't go to university, I've always felt a bit, am I going to be allowed to just write poetry if I haven't done a degree in English or in anything, you know? Yeah. I've always been quite chippy and paranoid. Mm. I still expect to be escorted out of the poetry, you know, taken by the shoulder and told that I shouldn't really be doing this because I haven't... It's surprising how many... Well, maybe it's not surprising, but a lot of poets feel like that or maybe people of all professions and art forms that's this imposter syndrome yes it's common isn't it yeah so I don't know who the people are who are sitting there thinking I'm in exactly the right place and I deserve <laughs> to be <laughs> yeah no it should be reassuring shouldn't it that other people feel the same yeah yeah every poetry event is sort of a room full of people <laughs> full of paranoia and self-doubt but that's all what I don't know gives us things to write about I suppose but I like that. I'm, I'm pleased that you get a kind of feeling of of plays from the poems because I think I, I do want that to some extent mm. to come across. And like I was saying earlier, you know, that, that allows me to have different voices. And um, I think it's a very strong sense. I, and I've meant the plays, not the poetry of Shakespeare. And I couldn't exactly put my finger on what it was about it. But I also wanted to ask you about the videos you made for the, your last books. Mark made these kind of, I don't know what you'd call them, sort of trailers or video recordings of him reading some of the poems from Sweet, like Rinky Dink. So there's one in which he, you are inside a kitchen cupboard reading the poem from in there and then the door of the cupboard shuts sharply at the end of the poem. <laughs> I thought they were brilliant and they really somehow seemed the right form for these poems. And then I've also wanted to ask maybe you don't consider this related to your work in any way, but you recently joined Instagram and I've noticed some of your posts seem related to those videos in the sense of there seems to be an interest in men inside little buildings. (laughs) (laughs) There's lots of posts of like featuring men inside booths and things like that. I don't know, I just wondered what that was all about. (laughs) The films, because I memorise my poems, if I do... a reading, I don't actually read, I recite, and I always mm. have done that. So I just thought, okay, I know all this stuff by heart. Why don't I just film myself doing them in silly situations? I'm worried now that I've made myself look a bit of a clown. <laughs> but, no, but in a, in a good way. I'm really interested in clowning and how it relates to all this stuff about 
proper clown training is supposed to bring out your sort of inner vulnerability and that's the sort of most pure form of the clowning art and I feel like there's something in your poetry about that maybe I think what I quite like about performing things is and I do think maybe that I see poetry as something to be performed primarily that and secondary you know that it exists on a page the good thing about performing them or whether on film or or to reading is that there's stuff I can say in the way that I in the way that I talk to you that makes it clear what I mean by the poem. I think what I mean is I can make it clear that I mean it. Because a lot of that my poems do employ bits of silliness, and I quite like to do that. But, you, yeah, you always read in quite a serious way. You don't sort of go, oh, I'm making a joke here or something. Yeah, it's sort of meant silliness, if you yeah. know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, So um, So in the films, I'm sort of taking the silliness a bit further by putting myself in... Slightly silly situations, some of them. It's a very serious silliness, I feel like. I think that's what makes it so successful, is there's a sort of deadpanness to it. I suppose on Instagram, not sure why I joined Instagram, but I have put some photographs up. There's one of me looking out of the window of a Wendy house. I saw this Wendy house. We were staying in a house in France, and they had a Wendy, and I just thought, I've got to get in that Wendy house <laughs> <laughs> and look out the window. I don't know what I felt that, that might capture. Well, there's something in your poems that there's always a kind of digging, a digging down. The epigraph to Sweet Like Rinky Dink, which I think is from your made-up character. So yeah, it is, actually. The epigraph is a line from name. a previous book. From Oh, OK, I didn't pick up on that. But it yeah. says, whenever you drill into the world, you'll find its richness. Dum-dee-dee. And that made me think of of lots of your work, there's often a sort of removing of layers or a sort of getting deep down into things. In To Dig, you've got the ending, beneath the skin, the slippy viscera perform a dirty operetta. Yes, they do. And there seems like there's something always a bit sort of slimy and dirty going on underneath, but there's a kind of gleefulness in seeking it out. It sort of maybe gives the impression that in the act of writing or that the speaker is always doing something a little bit subversive. I don't know if you feel like somehow that writing poetry is, is a bit subversive. Yeah, a little bit. And I want to expose stuff. A lot of the time I'm going, I'm sort of going, is this okay to the reader? Even though I don't really say anything particularly dark, I feel like I'm transgressing some internal borders, which involves going back to childhood. I mean, the middle-aged man in the Wendy house is sort of... <laughs> a kind of potentially slightly dark mixture of... I hadn't even thought of all the other connotations that could have. No, I showed it to Julie before I put it on, and she said, for God's sake, you can't put that out into the world. (laughs) (laughs) There's a Stephen King quote, I think. He talks about the boys in the basement, Mm. by which he means the people inside him, that there are people coming up with stuff. I really like that idea, and I, I can see some version of myself inside myself coming up with this stuff in my subconscious yeah i try to get some kind of access to him that's the the man inside the wendy house maybe he's getting up to who knows what yeah (laughs) and sometimes i picture that inside as being the body underneath its exterior you know where there's a kind of truthfulness i sometimes see the in your interior as like an innocent child who's in some to some extent 
a victim of the you that's on the outside, that's a kind of more adult construct. I'm very interested in the separation between the, the inside and the outside, what you present to the world and what's... I think I try and use poetry to some extent as a way of letting the inside out and then whether people will accept that. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that readers don't read my work thinking... Any, I know none of that's coming across, but that's how it is for me, I think. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I think it does to an extent. I mean, I can't speak for other readers. And I think a lot of writing is probably doing something similar. People putting things out that they are ashamed of or uncomfortable in the hope that it will be endorsed by other people who are like, thank God, it's not just me or something. Yeah, but it's also things like, oh, I want to be really silly at this point in the poem and say something completely detached. And will people go, oh, for God's sake, Mark, that's just annoying. Or will they go oh, I sort of understand why you wanted to do something silly at that point. And if they do that, then it's fantastic. Then I've, I've had a really intimate moment of connection with somebody. Silliness is underrated, maybe, on all its forms. It's a joyful mode. <laughs> yeah, and it can sort of break the frame a bit, I think, and let you in in some way. I was talking to the, the poet Matthew Cayley about John Ashbury, and he told me about an interview, which I've looked for and haven't been able to find, but... The interviewer apparently said to John Ashbury, so how do you see your work as having progressed over the last 10 years, Mr Ashbury? <laughs> and he thought for a while and then he said, well, it just keeps getting sillier and sillier. <laughs> <laughs> I love that about his, his work, the kind of fun he has with that. Is he someone, someone you've read a lot? Well, you? only recently, but a lot in the last three or four years. Is there anyone else you would find yourself reading a lot of or returning to? Or? Yeah, I don't know who I go back to, really. I have phases with poets, and then I put them down and forget about them, really. You know, I had a John Berryman phase, certainly. I remember the first time I read the Dream Songs, I'd been writing for quite a long time. It's like, oh, no, this person's been copying. In fact, I remember Doug Powell, D.A. Powell, saying mm. that he'd felt that when... He first came across Frank O'Hara, that he said, oh, my, this guy's been copying me, but he's been, he died however many years before I was born. And I felt like that a bit with John Berryman. Yeah, it can be funny how you might read someone's work and think they're influenced by X, and then it turns out they had never read X until a later point. Someone said that about my work with, I think it was Elizabeth Bishop. I don't know what happens there if you have somehow... Maybe you've been influenced by somebody who was influenced by That's them. That's exactly and, um, what I think it might be that, you know, that yeah. the dream songs must have had a huge influence and maybe I've been influenced by that. But also, he was very influenced by Shakespeare, I think. Mm. You know, so we've all got common influences going right back, I suppose. Yeah, maybe it's all part of the collective unconscious we were talking about before we started recording. <laughs> Yeah, and the zeitgeist, you definitely, working in advertising, you'd notice that suddenly everyone was having the same ideas about the same, you know, that somehow ideas pop out of culture at the same moment. Mm. So you've been working in advertising for quite a long time. Do you feel like there's an interrelation between that work and your poetry? Have they sort of informed one another in any way? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I think that maybe shortness suits me, so poems are generally speaking quite sure and so it adds you've got to get your point across 
quickly. Do they ever get mixed up? Like you start writing an ad and think, oh no, this is a poem or vice versa. <laughs> I've known nothing about the writing of adverts, so that might be completely way off. I remember realising that they fulfil the same... Yeah, sometimes I'd go out at lunchtime and I'd think, oh, I feel really good. I must have come up with a good ad idea. Oh, no, I wrote, it was the, I wrote a poem. Oh, no, it wasn't. It was I built a tower with my son's Lego. Poetry's probably better just because of the freedom. But that has its own issues. Uh, sometimes it's quite nice to have a brief where you know what your job is. But actually not knowing is more interesting. Embarking on a poem and not knowing what it is that you're trying to hunt. I don't know if you do many commissions, I mean, poetry commissions. Would you then find a poetry commission maybe more easy because you, you've got a brief or is that a different thing? As I was talking, then I was thinking, hang on, I have done poetry commissions and they're quite hard, actually. They're a funny kind of mixture of advertising and poetry. Yeah. They're like a weird halfway, halfway house. And what about poetry in adverts? That's a whole other thing that seems to be happening quite a lot. Maybe a topic we should steer clear of. <laughs> yeah, yes. I'm not sure about that. You haven't been tempted to write an advert that features a poem? Oh, actually, I did. But not the kind of poems that I would write as poetry. But I did years ago write some stuff that was sort of poetry for... Um, it never got made, but not the sort of poetry I would write where I, if I was actually writing a poem. It was sort of more easily digestible, maybe. I'll ask you one more question and then I'll ask you to read your second poem. Both of these poems kind of feature trees, and I was thinking trees seem to crop up quite a bit in your poems, or at least the last few poems of yours I published have featured trees, so maybe that's my bias because I'm really into trees. What is it about trees? That's great that you're really into trees. I'm incredibly into trees. Or rather, I was as a child. And I'm not a hippie and I'm not a religious person at all. Mm. But from the age of about 12 to 17, in the countryside, when we went away to the countryside, I mean, I hesitate to admit this because it sounds so kind of tree-huggy, I found that I could kind of commune with trees in a way that was almost verbal. Not quite, because obviously trees can't, tool but I could walk into a field and I'd see it was before Dutch elm disease like just before Dutch elm disease I loved elm trees but other trees too and sometimes I could see across a field and I'd go that tree I know if I go up from a dis they had to be oh you know you can't yeah, yeah. commune with a sapling <laughs> yeah and I had the sense that they have a kind of intelligence oh I think they definitely do there's this whole thing about how they send messages underground if something's going on above ground that, that they all need to know about. I've heard about that. Yeah, they seem like a very kind of benign consciousness that, that I felt they had. And as I've got older, I've kind of lost the capacity to tune into that. I had it once as an adult, but it was more like the whole place in the countryside was imbued with that thing, almost like a kind of consciousness or sort of some sort. But most of my poems about trees, I've found myself adopting a slightly hostile attitude to that. I really don't know what, what that's about. I've found nature incredibly difficult to write about. It's difficult to write about because it has been so written about in poetry. So how do you do it and find some new way of talking about that kind of connection to place? And also it feels politically difficult. And so I've found a way of writing about nature, which is... It's sort of the antithesis of 
like what could be more innocent than a tree. So it's somehow I quite like the absurdity of being irritated with them. Yeah, you've got that poem that was in maybe a year ago, Angry with Trees. The title is, <laughs> how could you possibly be angry with trees? <laughs> but somehow you managed to be. <laughs> well, let's hear, let's hear about the trees in uh, To Dig. To Dig. Trees dig. Just as we feel for keys down the backs of sofas, they seek burrowed critters to finger with their buried fingers. No, they don't. While the wind blows through their flickering toes, no, it doesn't. The windows of homes are made wicked by the curdling lives hold in there, those lives that steep and ripen in each other's juice. Each pane of glass, it knows that thick inside and that thin out where the careless world goes about and the emptied wind is. No, it doesn't. Beneath the skin, the slippery viscera perform a dirty operetta. Yes, they do. Thank you very much, Mark. Thanks for talking to me. It's been a pleasure and a joy. Thank you. I've enjoyed it too. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Poetry Society podcast. To find out more about the Poetry Society and how you can become involved, visit poetrysociety.org.uk